Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And uh, Amanda and I jumped into the truck, drove across the highway from the east end of Toronto to hang out with Rob today in his clinic. There's a really nice space here in Oakville. Yeah, I like I kind of like Oakville. That's not bad. Yeah, there's a little bit of money in Oakville, eh? A lot of hockey. Yeah. A lot of hockey players and a lot of... A lot of athletes, yeah. Where, where did I read a long time ago that Oakville was like one of the highest areas for like credit card debt? Did I imagine that or did I really read that I wouldn't somewhere? be surprised I would, at all. I, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. just based on uh, what you see like along the water, the homes and stuff. It's beautiful. These people, I assume, have money, but I think the more money people have, the more debt they also have. Yeah, well, well, I don't know. There's, I remember reading stats on annual, average annual incomes per household in Oakville being like uh, 168K per household um, for like across the board. But that was based on single earners in the household. Mm. And it was a a very skewed study. I was like, wow, that's, that's the city I'm working in. That's great. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, you, I don't can, fit. you can jump on. There's an app or a website called Realtor.ca. Yeah, and, yeah, and they do. They have stats on the neighborhood, so you can click on that and see the demographics and all the rest of it. We yeah. use that a lot in our business course when when someone comes to us with an idea of like, hey, I want to open a clinic in this neighborhood. I'm like, let's jump there and let's take a look at the demographics of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, this might change your mind a little bit, or might decide, you know, hey, I'm going to go full force on this type of thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, hanging out with uh, Rob and Amanda, like we said. before. For. Hey everyone, it's Amanda, registered massage therapist in Toronto, and uh, Mark's already sort of done the intro here. We are hanging out in, uh, make sure I say your name properly, it's Rob Haddo. Haddo? Yep. Yeah. Thank you, yes, holy <laughs> shit, yes. That Rob was awesome. Haddo, like Shadow, without Why the S, yeah. and uh, he is that. a registered massage therapist and a sports injury therapist. And uh, yeah, we just wanted to come here and hang out mostly because we like Oakville and we're EastEnders and we never have a reason to come out here. No, I'm kidding. Uh, But because we saw some stuff that Rob was doing online and thought this would be a cool person to talk to because as you know, if you've been listening and I assume that everybody's been listening, we like to have therapists on who are doing something different, have some sort of differential advantage in the marketplace and you know, maybe give some ideas to other therapists of things you can do that are outside of the box of massage therapy. And that's how we felt about you. Although you're looking at me like, do I do that? <laughs> I have no idea. I worked in isolation for almost the entirety of my career until the last couple of years. Before you guys jump into it, how do people normally pronounce your last name then? Uh, Hadao, Ado. Uh, they just, they butcher it. Yeah, yeah. And like, like needlessly butcher I'm like, it's just, it's just Hado. It's exactly <laughs> the way it looks. Hado. Yeah. yeah. But Hadao is probably the most common. People want to get fancy. Very hoity-toity. And it's, <laughs> I'm just like, it got to the point where I, I wasn't even correcting people anymore. My instructors were like, Mr. Hadao. I'm like, <laughs> have you ever seen that? <laughs> There's a Key and Peele sketch on a substitute teacher. It's hilarious. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Butchering everyone's name. <laughs> D-Nice. Hey, Is there a D-Nice here? Uh, Denise. Yeah, D-Nice. <laughs> that's, that's how I feel. <laughs> Right on, right on. So let's get right into this, man. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background as to you and as, as an RMT? Um, how long have you been practicing? Oh, God, I hit the uh, the 10-year mark last year. Right on. So, yeah, I just, I just broke my decade. Nice, nice. Yeah. So uh, tell us about uh, what made you decide to become a massage therapist. Like, what were you doing before massage therapy? Is this your first career, second career? What's the deal there? I guess we could say second overall career, maybe third, but I was, uh, I went to 
commerce or I went to McMaster for my commerce degree and and I was not a fan but I finished and then got a job in the field and was distinctly not a fan so I gave that a couple of years of trying and uh, I just it was almost on a whim uh, I had I had previously talked about wanting to be a massage therapist and I'd always decided um, I have a connective tissue disease so I'd always decided there's no way in hell I could I could do massage therapy and last more than a year or two mm-hmm. and uh, my mom one day had a newspaper she was like hey there's a a massage therapy college in burlington here and they they have courses open i was like screw it i'm not happy right now i'll try it and it was actually really fun yeah this is a stupidly fun field to study in so wait let me back this up what made you go to mac then originally where was the intent there or was it just Uh, like the the general expectation you know the drill oh you went to college okay or high school you got to go to university now and it's going to be how you make your money right 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 right. yeah when you're at that age it's sort of you have no idea what you want to do most of the time i think most people have no idea and a combination of pressure from parents and pressure from teachers and knowing you got to do something Like, I was just kind of pushed into university. I was super, super lucky that I chose kinesiology and I loved it. And, you know, I've worked in that field most of my life. But I think a lot of people just go into, that's a lot of people have undeclared, right, their first year because it just, you feel like you have to go to university. With mine, my parents, like their upbringing is, you know, that old school mentality? Okay, education is what's going to make you money. Let's this is bullshit. That's complete <laughs> bullshit now. Most people are overeducated and underpaid. It's not education that makes you money. It's finding a niche that you can market for yourself, right? But at the time, that wasn't the belief, and it was okay. University is, is rare, and most people don't get this. If you get that, you are guaranteed to have a good career. And from their generational point of view, that was legit. Yep. That was not ours. So, you need to have the pieces yeah. of paper to make the pieces of paper. Got it. Whereas now, you just got to have something you do different, better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or at least well enough. Before we talk about your massage career, do you mind telling us, you said you had a connective tissue disease. You yeah. weren't last more than five years. What what type of ailments do you have? What physical limitations? Or did you did you have and maybe they don't exist anymore? No, they, they exist. I got to put in like uh, 15, 20 hours minimum a week of rehab. So today, normally my clinic days are, are typically three days a week from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. And then my off days are, you know, four days a week. And in those days, I'll do um, a bunch of proprioceptive rehab or a bunch of stacked rehab, joint centration exercises, things like that. Uh, The disease is called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I have the hypermobility type. So it's the most common type. It's the least dangerous type. Like my life expectancy is probably around normal. It's not going to be too much shortened. Uh, at least that's the belief that I understand. And uh, but it happens to be the most painful type. And so, wait, are you are you a squeamish person at all? Not at all. Yeah, hand. So put a hand here. Oh, I'm stuck on something. There we go. Okay. All so, right. For all those of you who can't see anything, my hand is, is at his GH. <laughs> so, so you can now palpate. That's the uh, head of the humerus. Yeah. You can go to the supraglenoid tubercle, the insertion of the. Long head of the bicep right there. See, if I try to flex my elbow now, feel how that kind of pops out a little bit? Oh, yeah. yeah. So you've got your finger in my GH Yeah, joint. like literally right in there. Yeah, so... So you just have like extreme hypermobility. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, it's not... Okay, so it's defined as a hypermobility disorder, but the way I kind of figure that's a misnomer, it's not hypermobile. If Like, okay, think about... Okay, think about how we define mobility versus flexibility. In massage therapy college, we're taught um, a really myopic view of it. We're taught that if you are 
able to be moved, you are mobile. That is bullshit. Your mobility is your ability to control your flexibility. So the range of motion I have actively will be my mobility. The range of motion you could take me to will be my flexibility. And a great deal of our active proprioceptive sense, so say our our, our somatosensory thought of what our brain says we can do is based on our active, our mobility, rather than our passive, our flexibility. So people with my disease more tend to be hyperflexible. And actually hypomobile, I find. Uh, the EDS patients I treat will often have, I'll say, okay, reach your arm as high as you can, and they can go vertical, but if they want to if they want to control like a, a postural or a retrocoronal region so behind their body they're they're not able to do so they actually have to take their other hand and place it back there and pull it back there they don't have actually active control over what they can do is there apprehension in that uh, it depends on each individual so just like with pain like anything else this is really subjective so i just dislocated my shoulder right it didn't feel comfortable but if we go back uh holy shit okay i'm 40 now so if we go back like 15 years that would have hurt me a lot about seven years ago i got into indoor rock climbing and the the do you know what i mean if i say brachiation like a exercise where you're swinging from your arms. Rock climbing is like a modified form of brachiation, and that let me start loading up my shoulders more. And it got to the point now where I can be hanging from my arm, and it can dislocate, but it doesn't hurt anymore. Because as far as my nervous system is concerned, I can control that. I can be hanging by that arm, and I can actively pull it back together and keep climbing. No pain. Unless I shear in a really weird way or something and mm-hmm, piss off mm-hmm. one of the rotator cuff tendons or the, or the labrum or something. But as a general rule... My pain with those dislocations is a lot less now. It just takes a lot of work. This is a cool party trick now. You just pop your joints right out and put I, them back. I, I no generally pain. don't like to do it if I can help. <laughs> no, it. of course. It, it sucks. It's... So you're not pulling a, a Mel Gibson lethal weapon move? No. <laughs> no, that is, that is, oh, what's that called? A hill sacks lesion. That's a great way to create a hill sacks lesion. Dent the, the head of your humerus. But yeah, no, it's, it's not fun. It, freaking sucks but you can also if you put the time and the effort in you can control it but that's how i've had to kind of keep my career going was this sort of a motivation for you to go in massage therapy because rehab was part of your life or it was just something you like not even remotely involved and it was like a serendipitous holy shit this 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 helps me this is awesome but then there was a lot of misinformation, like, okay, you need to be icing your joints, need to keep your inflammation down. There was a lot of, oh, you uh, you have fascial adhesions and scar tissue and all that, all that stuff that we tend to get taught in school a lot that really doesn't stand up to the evidence that we can test on or even critical thinking. And um, yeah, that actually set me back a bit. I'd be icing for one to two hours every night minimum on my shoulders because my shoulders were just brutal. And that was while I was in school. I was like, wow, it's going to be interesting to see how I can hack it in this career because I actually really like this stuff. And um, when I stopped icing, my pain went down. I started doing more active rehab stuff, doing more resistance exercises, more active traction control. The pain went down and I got more and more functional and comfortable. At this point, it's a lot of work, yeah. But um, aside from like the odd shattered leg and things like that, the most functional I've ever been. Give us, uh, give us the idea through school then. So your 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 mother says, "Hey, there is a massage therapy school going on." Yeah. And you're like, "Okay, I'm in." What was your exposure to massage therapy before you decided this is something you want to do? Nothing formally. Nothing at all, eh? Nothing at all. Um, no, just I had sort of 
peripheral exposure through uh, my mom worked for these chiropractors' offices and stuff. As uh, when we were growing up, she would be their office manager at a couple different places. But um, but they were they were generally warrior type chiropractors, if you know what I mean by that. Yeah. So they didn't really have therapists on hand. But if I talked to them, okay, what would massage therapy be like? They'd say, oh well, you know, massage therapists are. Uh, they can be useful for a chiropractic office to um, to round out the treatment a little bit. And I went to kind of humor it and just to just to see. And I was like, well, I'm gonna entertain my anxiety today and go check this check this place out. And at least I can say I I, I looked. And uh, when I went, they did the you know the tour of the school and everything. And here are our classrooms. Here's the paramedic program. Here's the massage program. Here's the sports injury program. And when they describe when they describe the sports injury program, it really clicked because it's the massage therapy program plus a bunch more like uh, electrical modality course and um, an advanced technique course, which is basically just a whole bunch of osteo stuff. And uh, it was an extra year, and it sounded fascinating. It sounded like a combination of oh, this is a socially acceptable reason not to have to get my career in order for another three years. And also, <laughs> this sounds like cool information. <laughs> And so, you know, win-win, right? And uh, I signed up for it and went into a good chunk of debt for it and actually freaking loved the material. It was really cool stuff, and it was really fun to go from McMaster, where I would have, oh God, I don't know, international business and be dreading going to the class. Even though, if you've ever taken an IB class, the material is actually pretty cool, but I still hated going to the classes. Mm-hmm. I go to this, I was actually looking forward to going to school. I only missed two days in the full three years I was there. One for a funeral, one because I had a gallstone. I really enjoyed that. And uh, that was that was an eye-opener. So it was, it was. I'll try going to check out the, the college. Yeah, I think I like this. Holy crap, I really like this. Right on. Yeah, totally lucky, completely stumbling. So give us the career path. You finished school, school was a breeze, I assume. I put a lot of work in at school. So first year at school, I started a tutoring program for my other classmates. And uh, I got in on every cadaver lab they had while I was there. And um, started volunteering first year, actually, with a football team. I got lucky enough, a woman named Cheryl Yee uh, kind of fought to have me on her sports injury therapy team for a a football team in Milton. And uh, I got in a year earlier than you normally would. And so school was actually a lot of work, but it was like work that made sense to that, if that clicks. Yeah, well, I think that's what he meant by school was a breeze. We know the material's not easy, right? I mean, it's, you obviously have to study. And for somebody coming from commerce, I assume like physiology and neuro and all this stuff was fairly new to you. I think of everyone in my class, I had the least background in it to start. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, obviously you had to study and you had to work, but it's like that super cliche saying, like, if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. Right. I hate that so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I uh, love what I do. It fucking feels like work. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, you can love it, but you still don't want to be doing editing at two in the morning. Oh, no, no. Yeah. Yet we are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. School was a breeze in the sense that you loved it. You went every it was day fun. Yeah. and you did the extra stuff. You volunteered, you got yourself so immersed in massage therapy because you wanted to not just learn what you had to learn to take yeah. your exams. You wanted to be a good therapist. Yeah. And it wasn't just the massage therapy. It was the sports injury therapy. So, mm-hmm. okay. <sighs> You're both RMTs. You're going to be biased already. Close your eyes. Both of you. There you go. Okay. Imagine what you think the general public thinks about when they think of an RMT, what they think our day would be like. Oh, I don't even have to close my eyes, but okay. Okay. Describe me what you're visualizing. I'm visualizing a woman 
laying on a table with her hands placed under her cheek. And she has this really relaxed smile on her face. That beautific smile, Mm -hmm. right? And then she's got, you know, a sheet incorrectly draped over Mm -hmm. her. And there's another set of perfectly manicured hands (laughs) on her back. And the therapist is standing wearing all white with a smile on her face or his face. But I Uh feel like it's a woman. Yeah. And there's, you know, some candles in the background. There's, it's It's always got to be an open flame. It's dimly lit. Yeah. And you know what? You can smell the picture. Yes. There's, there's There's patchouli in the air. Oh, not patchouli, please. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm seeing. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, so there's your there's your stereotype. Oh, I forgot now, there's a there's a flower in the woman the client's hair. Oh sh- yes, yeah, yeah, there's, yes, there's there a flower. There has to be like an orchid, right? Yes, there's an yeah. orchid there. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> okay, so so we have our our stereotype now as RMTs, and I'm picking on you both here. I know as RMTs, how do you see what you're doing with your patient? Your client, your client. I'll let Mark answer that I'm, one. I'm out of this because I got a completely different background. I, I've been working as a, a kid and doing sports stuff way before I became an RMT. That so makes I, that even better. Please. Yeah, go for I've, it. I've got, I've got a different, I've got a different view. I view, uh, I don't view RMT work the same way most RMTs do. I don't view RMT work the same way the general public does. Um, I'm, I'm heavy into active rehabilitation. I'm into heavy joint mobilizations and uh-huh. movement. Uh, that's I come from a sport background in uh-huh. that regard. So my therapy looks different than the conventional stuff. Perfect. You're yeah. going exactly where I want this to go. Well, very similar. I mean, Mark and I treat out of the same location, and there's uh, there's one private room where we are, and then there's a big open space, and. If him and I have clients at the same time, somebody's in the private room, somebody's in the open space, and that's always okay because we can do our treatments with the person draped or not, with them on the table or not. It's, you yeah. know, again, it depends on what they're coming in for. So my treatments are also, it, it depends on the client. I do some of the traditional stuff. Like I do have clients who come in and want massage. Now I don't put an orchid in their hair. I don't use patchouli. There's uh, no do, candles. Do you have Enya though? At least? I do not have Enya. No, no Enya. I'm was... sorry. There's no Enya. I'm sorry. Because most of <sighs> You're my... You're ruining our stereotype. I am really ruining it. Not only that, but most of my clients and I, we actually have conversation going throughout the treatment. Yeah. It's yep. not a quiet relaxation type. There is relaxation components. I probably do way more of that than he does yep, um, because he doesn't do that at all. Okay. I'm probably more, I probably fit the stereotype more than he does. Minus yep. the fact that we're having conversation. I do a lot more joint mobilization. There's a lot of movement uh-huh. on my table and we typically get off the table at the end, you know, either 15, 20 minutes early and there's more movement stuff once their clothes are on so i'm both part of the stereotype and not i guess so let's bastardize this down then okay let's let's take what we're taught in school versus what we thought going into school for a lot of us okay i had no expectations i had no idea i humored the idea of going for the interview and it ended up being awesome and it was completely life-changing and i love my career now would i do this for fun hell no i would go home I would plug in my Raspberry Pi, my Raspberry Pi. I would play retro video games all day with my cat, and that is a good day for me. But being here is a, it's it's pretty damn acceptable to earn a living. So if I'm in this talking about what I like about this career, if I'm in this talking about what I expect from this career, I don't have a lot to go on relative to what people have as a preconception. But what were we taught in school versus what did we take away for a lot of the therapists in this field? Because we were taught in school massage therapy, 
generally speaking, general, general, general categories here, massage therapy, assessments, remedial exercises, Mm -hmm. and planning and communication, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what do most of us do in the field? So I have this idea broken down here, 25 for each out of 100%. So there's four quarters there. Most people take this massage part, and it becomes about 85 to 95%. Yeah, totally. Right? Yeah. I I every almost every single therapist who shadows me is like, "Yeah, so I don't even get to do assessments." The like, people come in, they're already stripping down to get on the table. We hear that a lot, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cuz the other half of what we do is our continuing education company, Conet Institute. Yeah. And we have an, an assessments review course, we have exercise courses and, and we get end that of every all the class. Time. You get people saying, "How do you deal with that?" Yep. Every single time. Every time I've taught assessments, every time I've taught Remax, every time I've taught arthrokinematics or kin, every time Okay, wait, 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 wait. When do you actually apply this stuff? Because I never get to in my in my practice. Think about that. Yep. We were taught that. We're massage therapists. We're supposed to use that. And what's really fascinating is in this massage category, in the M part, so I have M-A-R-P here, right? And in the M part for massage, we have a huge scope of practice, massive scope of practice yeah. of really, really powerful modalities. Now, are we breaking down connective tissue? Hell no. Almost definitely not. Are we unwinding fascia? No, that would be ridiculous. Can you imagine having a, a baby and holding your baby in the wrong way and accidentally unwinding its fascia and now it's just got torticollis? Oops. <laughs> okay, so we're not unwinding fascia with our hands, but we are modulating the nervous system. But then we got to put that in context. Active, right? So we have all these tools that we didn't use much in school at all that we were taught to use in school. We're taught to take away from school that we don't use in our careers almost ever. And so, yeah, my career ended up just making use of the other stuff. See, this is what sucks because a lot of times when you go to an RMT school, because when you go to an RMT school, you're taught by an RMT who might not prescribe to this equally broken up 25% model. And they're just going by what they've been taught from their previous RMT teacher with no other background than being an RMT. So essentially at the end of the day, what you have, you have the philosophy of that particular instructor and that's what you end up being as a in entry to practice RMT until you discover something else for the most part. And worse on that, okay, what career field taught your technical courses? (laughs) Come on. What 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 kind of career practitioner taught neuro for you guys? Was it a massage therapist or a chiropractor? I had a uh, I had somebody who had a master's in clinical anatomy. Uh, yeah, no, oh. not at our school. Our school it was a it was a chiro. I think that did neuro. Yeah. But you know the schools I I've taught at was Cairo. Yeah. My school was Cairo. Yeah. Every other colleague I've worked with, their school was Cairo. Yep. For a lot of the Remex stuff, for the for the arthrokinematics and such, for advanced techniques in exercise rehab, uh, I've heard athletic therapist, mm-hmm. I've heard physiotherapist and Cairo. I actually have not Outside of me teaching those courses, heard of a massage therapist teaching those courses. I had a massage therapist dun, teaching dun, dun. me those. Yeah. That's not very common, though. No, it's not. No, it's, it's not. A lot of the time, oh, well, we'd rather have a physio do this. So, Or you'll have, even, you'll, you might even have the massage therapist who's supposed to instruct that course being like, eh, you know what? Not very comfortable with this material. Let's pass it off to somebody that else. That is really very sad because, I, I mean, I see where you're going with this whole point is we are therapists and we're taught to do all this. So, in, But we're reinforced to only do... Yeah, and I mean, yep. yeah, if you've got a physio teaching you, that's basically telling all of the future RMTs, we don't know as much as physios do when it comes to rehab exercises. So let's refer out. Now, what if you got some jackass like me there who's had like 30 broken bones and who's had literally thousands of dislocations who's like, man, there's a whole lot of stuff in here that's helping me and not a lot of it is being on the table. 
a lot of it does involve some of the table work, but also in context. I mean, the table stuff is passive. Joint mobilizations are good for depressing nervous system, not feedback, but attention to the area saying, oh shit, that, that's at risk. As you gently mobilize the joint, the nervous system says, eh, you know what, that's not so bad. I like that. I'm not going to be so hypervigilant. I'm going to let the spasm go down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let the muscle tension go down. I'm going to let that range of motion go up and yeah, you know, I like that too. I'm going to drop the pain warning. And then you take something like that, you take that result, and you you do something with it. And that was awesome for me because I'd leave school and go to the gym for a couple hours, and I could I could move. Holy shit, I could move. That was the best because you move and you train and you get stronger and better and you start feeling better day to day. But we aren't actually encouraged a lot of that. And in our courses that address that, that address the, the, the white noise or the, the negative space, that's the word, the negative space, Outside of the massage, the hands-on, we have chiros and physios usually teaching them. Oh well, I mean, yeah, neuro is important, but if you have a, if you have someone with something like this, refer to the chiro. Oh well, yeah, I mean, exercises are important, but if you're going to be doing remedial exercises, refer to the physio. No, my Remax, my my understanding of exercise rehab is better than almost any physio I've ever seen, and better by far than any physio I've worked with. So I'll refer to me. Or if I have questions, I'll refer to my mentor who has 40 years in the field and is not shy to tell me when my head's up my ass. I will go outside like that. But as a general rule, it's not about a field. It's about the qual- the quality of care from a practitioner. And there are a lot of great RMTs out there. There's a guy in Ancaster who's just killing it with concussion work. There's um, a guy in Hamilton who's amazing with applying ART concepts into rehab, into high-level athletic output. So not just ART and good, you're, go- you're good to go. ART and, okay, I want you to try doing these things at the gym, put that together. I think there's a lot of therapists now, though, that are breaking outside of this box. Yeah. Yeah. The more that... Uh, we interview people on the podcast. The more therapists I meet through people coming to our courses at Con Ed, I'm seeing that people no longer view themselves as somebody who just offers massage. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. It does have to do with the title. We're called Massage Therapists. The public's idea of massage is getting the lotion on and getting that. And I still think there's space for that. As I said, I still do that. It's There's a part of it. Wrong with that. The passive therapy, but we need to know the right? The passive therapy does serve a purpose, and sometimes your client just really does want that because they need that that moment that day, and that's fine. And there's a lot of value in that too. Totally. But there's value in the other stuff, and a lot right. of us don't have the reinforcement. Don't we? We don't even have the positive reinforcement to say, yeah, no, you are actually a powerful clinician, not just massage therapist. We're clinicians who operate as massage therapists. Massage is our key passive applicable modality. That's all it is. The hands-on massage massage is our modality of choice. Mm-hmm. The clinical, the clinician side of it is our application of said passive modality. And that's going to have to be up to therapists to be as confident as you are to say, no, I can do the rem. I don't need to refer you to a physio. I can do it. And your patients know what you do and they continue to come back to you because they know what you can do for them. Well, until so, I discharge them, but yeah. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's... It's up to each practitioner to decide what type of therapist they want to be. And if they, if therapists are so concerned about the way the public views them, then it's up to us to change that view, right? It's not, the public knows what they know and they know, they hear massage and they think, awesome, relaxation. I can relate this back to a story of a friend of mine. I, I say friend, term is very loose, somebody I know. And I've known her for a while. She's, okay. she, I mean, she's a really nice person. We are friends, but I mean, it's... But not like going out for coffee friends. Yeah, like we're not we're not BFFs. So 
in all the years I've known her, she knows I'm a therapist. She knows what I do. She is an athlete. Um, she plays basketball. She plays hockey. She plays baseball. I mean, I'll wreck, but she's very active. And she had a shoulder injury and it was going on 11 months. And every time I'd see her, because we didn't see each other very long, it was, she would tell me about this shoulder injury. And every time I would say to her, why don't you come see me at my office? Why don't you come? And I would continuously, why don't you come see me at my office? One day we were in a group of people. One of the other girls said, Hey, you're a massage therapist, right? I want to book an appointment with you. I need a massage badly. She's a nurse. Totally makes sense. And the other one with the shoulder injury said to me, okay, but when I go for a massage, you know, I like the essential oils and I like it to be relaxing and this and this. Do you do that? And I said, no. And I said to her, but you have a shoulder injury. Do you want me to fix your shoulder? Finally, after months and months and months, she came to my office, three treatments, discharged, gone, shoulders fixed. I was getting text messages. It doesn't hurt at all. I'm throwing shots from where I don't understand basketball. Where was she throwing from? Foul line. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) But the point is that her idea of massage was not what she thought she needed for her shoulder. Once she finally got over that and came to see me, saw what I did, she said, oh, I guess I don't even have to go to my physio anymore. And unfortunately, we have a lot of reinforcement that our role is to do the massage and pass off to someone else. I believe you. I feel like I, I, I feel like I hate saying that on the podcast now because I think there's a lot of therapists who don't there's a fall lot, under that percentage. category. I think we need to find real stats on this because I don't want to offend the ones who are really making waves. Like I think there are people who are doing what you're doing. Don't worry about offending them because the ones who are making <laughs> waves aren't going to be offended by this because they'll have run into the same thing. That they're not doing. Yeah. They're not going to be. They're not going to be offended. They're going to know exactly what you're talking about, exactly what we're going over. They're going to probably be sitting there going, "Yeah," because I get asked by way too many colleagues, "Well, how do you manage to incorporate like remedial exercises?" I never have the time. My patients want to be on the table from beginning to end. And you know what? There are patients who want that. They want one hour on the table. And if that's the patient, then maybe they need to go find a therapist who wants to strictly do one hour on the table and doesn't want to assess and doesn't want to do remedial exercise. I think it's a disservice to the person because all they're really getting is that one hour on the table, passive therapy, no real change. But if that's what they want, there are people that can give it to you. Then there's a value to that. There's totally value to that. It's all different forms of neuromodulation, right? And whatever you get out of it, if it suits your needs, becomes valuable. Mm -hmm. And up until uh, last time I performed a massage was... October, I think October 2nd or 3rd or something, 2015. And up until that point, yeah, if I had someone come in who said, yeah, I just want to get a massage, I'm stressed, I'm experiencing this, I'm getting headaches from it, okay, cool. Do you mind if we do the massage like this and I try to work on some areas that we tend to see associated with tension that can also result in in headaches? Yeah, that'd be amazing. Cool. And I'm fi- I was fine with that. I don't do hands-on like that anymore because bloody hell, that can get sore after a while with my disease. But I was fine with that as long as they were making their informed decision. Unfortunately, if I don't have the information to give them the ability to make an informed decision, yeah, okay, that might not be the best approach to this, but if that's what suits you best now, let's do it. But may I also suggest some alternatives? If their yeah. idea is, I paid for an hour of treatment, that means a solid hour on the table. No, you paid for an hour of my time. That's Yeah, that's a misconception that, again, therapists need to make that clear because I've, I've run into that a couple of times with somebody. I go through you know 20 minutes of assessment 
and then they get on the table and then they're like, well, that wasn't an hour. Do you think that assessment was out of the goodness of my heart? I like you, but not that much. And I mean, <laughs> that that comes with confidence, right? No one's walking out of school with cojones the size of planetoids thinking, yeah, I know exactly what to do and how to enforce myself and how to how to output and respect my boundaries and communicate them. We're walking out of school like, okay, so uh, I'll take what I can get for now and I'll do my best. I mean, that was me. Mm-hmm. I was an idiot. You know, keep working, keep questioning, keep educating, keep building and eventually build some confidence with that. But in school, there's a lot of reinforcement in almost all the schools, if not all the schools I know of, towards here's where we fit in the therapy modality and we can't, don't contribute outside of the massage. Even if it's nonverbal, there's a lot of that. Yeah, I never really like thought it, it, it is nonverbal because as you said, we learn how to assess. We learn oh, how to yeah. do remedial exercise. We learn how to make treatment plans. We learn all of it. And this is going back some years. I don't know if this is still true, but I really, really think it probably is. Weakest station on the CMTO's OSCE. Assessment. Assessment. Yeah. yeah. Statistically, the two lowest stations. Now, the best station for my school classically was assessments. The sports injury program was, I think, the only program where every person in the class always passed assessments in, like, Ontario or something. I don't know if that's true or if I was misunderstanding that statement, but... Our sports injury program had just a stupid high pass rate on the assessments, basically 100% every year. We focused a lot on assessment, Remex, and RTP status, uh, RTF status, return to play, return to function. Not ADL, not can you reach the cereal on the top shelf, but Mm -hmm. can you throw, can you jump, can you dive roll, can you do what you do in your daily, outside of daily living, but daily extraneous activity. And so assessments for us made a lot of sense, but it's okay. Okay, here, here, here. Speeds test. Do you remember your speeds test? Yes, I do. What does it do? What are we testing for? It is meant to test for a bicipital tendonitis of the long head. What does it really tell us? Tells us if there's going to be local pain or if you're going to be able to palpate any weakness associated with a shoulder flexion. Did you literally just like open McGee before you got here? No, man. No, that's the way Mark's brain works. my head like uh, crazy. <laughs> okay, so what does it really mean in real time then? I mean, it could tell us a lot of things, to be honest with you. Will it give us some information about a bicipital tendonitis? It can. Will yeah. it give us information about anything that it's involved with the shoulder flexion, like an anterior deltoid issue. It can, like there musculoskeletal issues associated with flexion. Just from the palpation in the area, can it get into deeper structures? For sure. Can it also take a look at some of the stabilizers for the shoulder in that area, like subscapularis? Hell yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot so of... So there's a lot of gray. There's a lot of gray. Basically, all it tells us is when you put your arm in this position, and I challenge it, you get or do not get pain. Right? And that's all we know about any of our special tests. We put them together in context, we get a bit more. But in school, okay, know your special tests, memorize your special tests, know what they mean. Right. Well, this is the problem because in school you're not, no one, because it's so massage, hands-on focus, you don't, you don't really get a true appreciation of understanding movement and then really kind of breaking down what is happening when the body is moving like this and what is happening when you are applying this force to the body and palpating these areas. And what creates safety to make it pain-free? I mean, and so when we look at these tests that we're taught, we look at, oh, well, if a person has a a bicep tear, they'll have a positive speed test. Bullshit. 100% bullshit. They can have a bicep tear and a negative speeds test and complete strength and be just a beast on the court. They can be dummying people when they serve at volleyball. They can be swimming like a fiend, like a dolphin, mm-hmm. and have a torn bicep and have no injury, uh, or sorry, no pain, no dysfunction, no weakness, no sign of it. When you get an ultrasound and they got a big old three centimeter tear longitudinal that tendon. Yeah, totally. We watched a video of a bodybuilder on stage break her foot on stage and what? continue with the whole routine. Wait, what? 
Did she know she broke her foot? She knew she hurt herself. I mean, at the time, she might not have known it was broken. <laughs> she did something. She broke her foot. It ended up being broken. But uh, she continued with her whole... She functioned because that's what she had to do at that moment. And I'm sure that, you know, afterwards it hurt like hell. But in that moment, she was on stage. She continued. So we get taught this myopic, absolute black and white assessment that is objectively wrong. Of course, we're going to feel like we're idiots when we try to use those assessment skills and they don't hold up to to criticism to... Uh, holy crap, I can't remember my words today. Shedding the light of investigation, whatever. Critical thought, we'll say that. They don't hold up critical thought. They don't hold up testing. It took me a long time to realize that like, I would come to Mark because I would do these assessments. And yeah. I actually... I was actually pretty proud of the fact that I always do, did assessments. You know, I thought I was doing things the way I was supposed to. And so I would do my active range of motion. I would do some, I did everything. And then I would come to him and say, but this was positive and this was negative And this is, and I was like, this doesn't make sense though, because you know, I, my gut is telling me it's the deltoid yet these tests are, t and, and he would say to me like, okay, it's, it's just a test. This, yeah. you know, and it was sort of through coming back to him over and over and over again and saying, why the hell am I getting inconsistent results with my tests? Do you know how many Keska fuck moments I ran into <laughs> assessing myself in school where I was like, okay, okay, okay. So they taught us this in class today. And I mean, fine, I'm going to dislocate my wrist and try that. No, I can still function. Hurt a little bit, but the test didn't apply. Or the fact that I'm arthritic in my wrists. And I, I, don't have, I have a very negative bracelet test. And it was just, okay, Maybe if my nervous system is used to running on a really high level of physical dysfunction and saying this is our normal, then maybe mm -hmm. your tests that test for a baseline normal that doesn't apply to me don't apply. And if I'm that much of an outlier, that seems statistically unlikely because that's me as a sample set of one. So what if I looked at it as just how many people are outliers in their own way? Every nervous system is different. Duh. So our special tests become not so special. No bueno. And so our assessment more has to be not what causes you pain. That's the that's the positive space, that's the, the foreground, but the negative space, the background, what can you do? But that also leads into, okay, can we build on what you do? And that ends up being very empowering for our patients. And can, if we do our job right, make us obsolete, but we're not taught to do it that way in school. However, if we go to the University of South Australia, where they get into a lot more of the neuro and a lot more of how they're doing their REMEX and their assessments, it's a lot more individualistic. Yes, a speeds test means this, but realistically, here's the context. We have people who feel much more empowered in, train, in training and treating their patients to actually make those patients more active rather than say, oh, you have a headache? Okay, get on the table and I have to fix your headache. Oh, you have plantar fasciitis? Okay, I have to strip your plantar fascia and break down your scar tissue because you have scar tissue there. That's what I learned in my textbook. That's what Rattray said. So you don't like school. <laughs> <laughs> I love the schools. I've worked for some of the schools. I am currently writing my own freaking course material. I love the schools. I just want therapists to walk out with a bit better understanding of what we are. I think it's, there's so many problems thinking. that are that are thrown in the mix on this. One, I don't think schools... Mm, I think there's a, there's, a, <laughs> there's a massive handful of schools that don't give a fuck about what their program is and how successful their graduates are going to be in the field or how it broadens minds. Like the they, private colleges? Uh, or like the, some of the public colleges, some of the, some of the yeah, community right? colleges. Because regardless, was, they'll get jobs. They can go to a massage therapy chain that's just going to hire them they can go to a spot that's well, what the schools care well, about that they're going to get out this be is, successful get a job this is kind of what i'm getting at the schools for the most part the majority of the schools that teach massage therapy in ontario they're private career colleges and most of them don't give a fuck right 
not a lot of them are even just a massage therapy program. We got all of our other low-rung medical stuff. They don't care. That's the first thing. (laughs) The second thing is these schools, they don't pay instructors very well. So any instructor that has, you know, some knowledge in another area to bring to the table to educate future RMTs, you're not really going to want to work for the $25 to $30 an hour when I could be in my clinic making a little bit more. And the third part of this mix is how many people that were in your class that you can remember actually even gave a shit about all the stuff that we're talking about. That is a hell of a point. But the people I interact with, now, again, really biased market because the people who are coming to me are typically people who are interested in furthering their education. But the people I interact with often do have not necessarily passion about massaging, but passion about being as best as they can be. As best as they can be? <laughs> Holy crap. Um, That's okay. We're as, not English majors. Go ahead. <laughs> as good as they can be, doing as well as they can do in their career, not just, okay, I want to be the best massage therapist I can be, but I want to be the best at, I can be in my job, in my career, mm-hmm. if that's massage therapy. I want to walk away at the end of the day and feel damn good about what I did mm-hmm. and feel confident. Or if I screwed up, feel that I can learn from it. I mean... Holy shit, we were talking... Okay, we have to get back to that. That was a (laughs) Kevin Smith-style segue, sorry. So the career path thing, my career is basically built on just a series of clusterfucks, man. I basically just learned through mistake over and over again. So give us the biggest mistakes that have have, uh, come across your way, and uh, what was the takeaway, and how did it mold you into you? I'll do two general. Clinically, kind of not critically disseminating what I learned. The people who educated me in school were doing their best, Mm -hmm. and some of them did a really good job. Like, I'm really happy with the fact that, for example, when I was in school, my mentor pulled me aside and was like, yeah, just, you're you're a smart guy, and you are, like, you have the highest mark in your class, and you do a great job, and you work really hard, but, I mean, you got a big ego, and you're going to find out when you get out of here that you know nothing, and that's going to probably hit, like, a, a really cold, uncomfortable splash, so... Just so you know, prepare for that. And he was right. It was like within a year when I realized my head was a mass. I had no idea how far, but it was up there. January 16th, 2013 was when I was like, holy shit, okay. A lot of what I believed in school was really wrong. And I need to go back to the drawing board here and re-educate. And I've gone through a couple of hits like that now. But that was the re- really the most, clinically speaking, in my practice, my professional life, that was the most, holy crap, I was this wrong. I believe this, and this is just not likely. Holy crap, I was wrong. I have to address that. That hurts my fragile male ego. But then, personally, not even reading between the lines, like, EDSers, we operate at a really high baseline level of daily pain. I mean, you step out of your car, you step out of your car. I step out of my car, I break an ankle. You have to be aware of those things. You start getting, as weird as it sounds, you, get, you start getting used to dislocating a joint or breaking a bone and just going about your daily activity and saying, okay, well, I've done this before. I can, I can function. I can set up a doctor's appointment later. It's not an emergency. I still have to get groceries. And you hobble through the grocery store. But not respecting that, not listening to that, I was not paying attention enough April 20th, 2016, I wasn't paying attention enough to the fact that I was, I was having shin splint, pain, shin splint pain for a couple months at that point. I've been working on loading up more uh, explosive power loading in my own rehab. I've been working on um, punch to front tuck, so punching off the floor at gymnastics club and front flipping. And I was doing a, a demonstration on the arthrokinematics of side flipping on the trampoline. And as I pushed off the trampoline, I pushed off with the one leg versus the other one, and my shin broke. And the bone, I had a compound fracture. So the shin bones came out. I was looking at my leg as it happened. And 
because I was talking about, okay, if I turn my foot here versus here, it'll do this. And I watched him come out, and I'm like, well, this is inconvenient. And it was one of those things where I went, ah, in my head, the back of my head, I went, shin splint pain, stress fractures, dumbass. And so that's just two very blatant oops moments that I can think of off the top of my head where they were kind of like, uh, remember those TSN turning points? Mm-hmm. Or TSN turning points. They're like, okay. The, the one in the gym was, I need to respect my pain levels more. Just because I'm used to them doesn't mean that there's not something serious going on. The one in clinic was, okay, I need to try to read between the lines more. And I still screw up and catch that the wrong way. I still, one of my patients I treated this week um, blew a knee, blew his ACL in um, October last year. And he called me when it happened and said, hey, what are you up to? Do you mind coming and having a look at my knee? And he sent me the video of what he did. And I went, well, no, I'm not going to come and have a look at your knee. You're going to go to the doctor, go to the hospital right now and make sure you don't have a tibial plateau fracture as well. I think you blew your knee. I'm worried you broke the tibia. Go get that checked out. Go get that ruled out. This isn't something you need me to come and assess. We can see that you did something. And the doctor at the um, at the ER said, yeah, no, you didn't tear anything. You're fine. I didn't investigate further into that. And so for the next couple of weeks while I was working on him, we had him non-weight bearing. And it, everything just felt really splinty, really spasmy. And as we got the swelling down, he was more and more mobile. I was like, I don't get it. Why are you so mobile? Why is this? Why is your anterior drawer test so positive when they said you didn't blow anything would did, do you have the image report he goes oh they didn't image me. <laughs> wait what he goes the er doctor just said yeah you didn't blow anything you didn't rupture anything you're fine you can leave went, but what he goes oh yeah 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 no they uh they they didn't image me he just grabbed my knee and did the test that you did and like wobbled it around and said yeah you didn't blow anything i'm like but <sighs> okay so i'm gonna just go on the record right now saying i'm a moron and I should have realized or at least assumed your doctor wouldn't have checked. Your doctor didn't check properly. We're going to go under the index of suspicion that, yes, you did rupture your ACL now. We are going to assume that that's the case because up to this point, we've been believing it wasn't based on me thinking the doctor had done imaging and they hadn't. And so even with 2016 January, or sorry, 2013 January, uh, even with that, I still catch myself looking at things at face value or making stupid little assumptions like that. So, But you learn from them. I mean, ostensibly, but <laughs> practically speaking, I mean, how much do I learn? Because I still made that mistake again. So I'll take that. I'll take the charity. But for now, <laughs> let's call a spade a spade here. I ain't always the brightest bulb in Vegas. I think recognizing that, though, puts you a step above some people. I mean... I, I remember once saying to a client, he came in, he was seeing myself and um, an athletic therapist combined. The athletic therapist did his assessments and, you know, gave his clinical impression. I completely disagreed with what the athletic therapist said. And I told the guy, this is where I'm leading. But again, with all of the testing I was doing, I was getting really bizarre results. And it it wasn't quite adding up. But I said, my gut is saying this, your athletic therapist is saying this. And I said, you know, at this point, I'm going to be a mechanic. And we're just going to, I'm going to try something. If it doesn't work, we're we're going to try something again. And that was it. And we did... I think I was seeing him twice a week for three weeks until the point where he could function again. He could weight bear on that leg again. He could do what he was doing. And he said to me, I don't know what you did, but you did it. Like, you're like I don't know either. Cool. Yeah. I don't know either. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that, that was it. And that is, like, you have to admit, that is a shockingly 
empowering thing to be able to say. To be able to say, you know what, I, I don't know. Uh, we can test, and we're going to go through and break this down arthrokinematically, or we're going to break this down functionally, or you're mm-hmm. going to give me little tidbits of your health history every time I see you, the things that pop in your head. I want you to pay attention while you're out. That's, out. that's just it. I ask my clients... Every time this happens, yeah. pay attention to what you were doing, what just happened, what you felt. Like all of this information can be helpful to me. I don't pretend to know by doing a few of these orthopedic tests, as you said, that what is it really telling you? I don't pretend to, you know, do a speeds test and say, "Cool, it's your bicep tendon." I, I don't know. Yeah. But I can get an idea of what they can do and can't do, and. Let's work on structures that are going to improve this in some way. I'm going to give you some exercises. Oh, those aren't quite working. Let me give you something else. And that's that's what our job is. And so when I when I do assessments courses with therapists, one of the things that they focus on is the black and white, right? And one of the things that frustrates them is the black and white doesn't match. It would be really nice and really empowering if we were to say, it's okay that you don't know. You're not going to know. And the nice thing about assessments is most of the time you're going to be wrong. If I assess you and say, oh, I think you have bicipital tendonitis, okay, cool, you might. But you probably have a plethora of other things going on in there that I don't know about because things don't almost ever happen in isolation. Well, and also, then it doesn't really matter because your treatment approach is going to treat all of the structures that are potentially part of the problem anyway or probably are going to be part of the problem. So does it really matter? And if we focus on that negative space, if we take a graded exposure approach we get to take the minutiae out of the equation. Instead of focusing on the positive space, on the, I think it's this, this, and this, we say, okay, let's see what you can do instead. Let's see what things don't hurt It's you. not broken. It's not sprained. Okay, that's what that's where we've gotten. Or if it is broken or it is sprained, yeah. what is still safe for you to do day to day? What are your limits? How do we gently build them? And how do we respect the timeline needed to heal? Very Mickey Mouse that way. It's super, super simple. And it works. But it's not a nice flashy answer. So it's not as, I'm right. It's more... I don't know, but I think I know how we can methodically help you. Well, that's just it. Like you said, we're not taught that way in school. We're not taught that it actually is much more simple. You don't have to get positives in all of the appropriate tests. You don't have to. I mean, we're not allowed to diagnose anyway. So you don't have to give. You don't have to give something. You don't have to give something a name, though. Is the point? It doesn't matter what the name of the test is. It doesn't matter what the name of the condition is. Sometimes what matters is, as you said, what can you do? What can't you do? And what can I do? And what can't I do to help you to build on that? That really is what our job should be. And what's missing, probably, from education, is the critical thinking and being encouraged to think critically and being encouraged to look at people as individual versus this black and white textbook. And I'm a naturally very naive person. And so I have to step back and try to consciously say, okay, no, 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 no. Don't read that at face value. Stop. Read between the lines. Apply. Cross-reference. Oh, okay, no. The people who who paid for that study are the same people who sell the ultrasound machine. That's why it's an outlier. Oh, okay, what a shock. <laughs> and I I used to believe basically everything I read. I still fall into that all the bloody time and still catch myself most of the time. How have these screw-ups helped you to sort of build your career or to angle it in the direction you've gone now? They've helped me to be a lot more comfortable admitting when I'm wrong. That's for damn sure. They've helped a lot with me being able to not take that insultingly if someone questions me, not be like, no, I'm right. Why are you questioning me more of, okay, so what are your thoughts? Oh, yeah, you are right. I am wrong. Okay, that helps. Um, they've helped me feel a lot more confident in my, my clinical approach 
and a lot more aware of my capabilities and lack thereof. And that's carried over a ton to my clientele. So, uh Would you be the same therapist you are right now if you didn't have that sport therapy background from school? I don't know. I was wondering about that this week, actually. Um, I think close to it, but slightly different. A lot of the education that involved things like taping and bracing classes, um, electrical modalities, um, advanced techniques, biomechanics. So there was stuff in there that I don't think I would have necessarily studied on my own. Biomech, I probably would have gotten into. Taping and bracing, not likely. So there are there are parts of my approach that I use that I don't think I would have if I hadn't done the SIT program. But in terms of stumbling onto the, are we breaking down fascia? No. Are we are we breaking down scar tissue? No, probably not. In terms of stumbling onto the more realistic stuff, I think I'd probably be in a similar place. In terms of the exercise, the Remex, yeah, probably. I spend so much time doing movement exploration, I kind of have to. So with all the exercise and movement stuff you do, and uh, the general public feels this is physiotherapy domain, this is not yours as an RMT, according to the general public, but not according to our scope of practice. How do you feel about a naturopath who learns massage therapy techniques and starts doing massage therapy work? I don't care. Do you want. Are you in your scope of practice? Yeah? Okay, cool. Are you screwing up that patient? Maybe. So, okay. Mm, no, actually, that's not as applicable as I thought. Um, if I deal with a, a, a naturopath who's doing soft tissue manipulation with one of, their, one of their patients, I don't care. If they're doing something in such a way that would disempower that patient. So say we had a patient in common, and that patient came in and said, well, my naturopath um, frictioned my Achilles and said they're breaking down the scar tissue and that the scar tissue isn't as strong as, as, as the initial tissue and that... I'm at a, a, a risk of injury. Okay, why are they saying you have scar tissue? Well, I have pain there. When did you start getting pain there? I went on vacation to Punta Cana. I was on the beach a lot. Um, and I started noticing the back of my heel got sore. Okay, well, now I'm starting to have an issue. Did you rupture your Achilles? No. Did you get stabbed in your Achilles? No. Did you get shot in your Achilles? No. You probably don't have a reason to have scar tissue there. So let's talk about what could be going on. And let's go through when you started feeling pain. And let's maybe isolate and narrow down whether it's even involved in the Achilles or if it's maybe, say, a retrocalcaneal bursitis and all that frictioning pain you're going through is absolutely unnecessary. And if I uh, if I really feel I need to, I might call that natural path. Be like, okay, where are you coming from with this? What is your reasoning? Because I'm curious. And if they can justify it, I mean, think about it. There's no, no such thing as a bad exercise or bad treatment if it follows some certain criteria. Does it contribute to the betterment of the patient in such a way that isn't a high risk relative to reward and in such a way that isn't offset by an opportunity cost of something that could do a better job with less effort, right? Pretty Mickey Mouse. So if that naturopath was to say, well, the reason I'm doing this is because of this, and I actually believe that this helps like this, and here's the research, then I, I got to admit I'm wrong. So if it's in their scope and it's helping and it's not hindering, there is a lot of overlap with a lot of complementary healthcare we have practitioners, right? Scope. There's so much there's yeah. so much overlap. Like you said, we have a huge scope, naturopaths, chiropractors, physios. And I think that if people stop looking at us all as very separate entities who do very separate jobs, then yeah, you can absolutely go to your physio and get all of the therapy that you need possibly. And if not, they can refer you to someone else or you can go to your RMT or you can go to your chiropractor. Um, but yeah, I guess, as you said, we are more encouraged to refer to a chiropractor if it's a joint issue. We are more encouraged to refer to a physio if the person needs more remedial exercise. 
But all of us have these things within our scope of practice. The way I figure, if we look at that kind of Venn diagram of SOP, um, the outside part of that Venn diagram, as I understand it, relative to us in terms of scope, from, say, chiropractic to massage, chiropractors, I think, can diagnose? They're doctors, so I would assume so, yeah. Now, again, let's look at the criteria for a diagnosis. We need three things. Current situation reflective, health history reflective, and corresponding imaging to to corroborate, right? Mm -hmm. If I don't have those three things, I don't have a diagnosis. Or not necessarily imaging, but objective, non-clinician-based testing, like, say, blood work, urinalysis, um, imaging. And so... Anytime someone says, oh, yeah, my so-and-so diagnosed me, if they don't have those three things, you automatically can't trust that diagnosis now. Unless it's something like Parkinson's with a pathognomonicity, like a pill-rolling tremor, you can't trust it. So we can take diagnosis out of the equation for that for now. They can do it, but it doesn't really mean much in my mind. It's always an index of suspicion. A diagnosis indicates certainty, and I don't think we can almost ever have that. I think it's just in the lingo. People will tell me, my doctor diagnosed me with bursitis. And when I ask them what the doctor did, and it's similar to what you told me about your patient, where the doctor didn't do anything, anything. didn't even touch the patient most yeah. of the time. It's, okay, do this, does that hurt? Do this, does that hurt? Yeah, yeah it's bursitis. Yeah. And you're like, okay, no. All I know is that doing those things hurt. And here are the structures that could be involved, or it could be non-structural entirely, and your nervous system can just be having a conniption fit because, as far as it's concerned, you exceeded your neurologically projected proprioceptive boundaries, but not your mechanically um, bounded proprioceptive boundaries. You didn't exceed tissue integrity. You just exceeded your nervous system's perception of tissue integrity. So you didn't hurt yourself, but your nervous system is saying, "Uh uh-uh, spasm protect until I know better. So those diagnoses right there, diagnoses right there, would automatically be suspect. But going back to that scope, chiropractors can do HVLA on um, axial skeleton. <laughs> I keep calling it axillary skeleton. <laughs> nope. <laughs> One of my colleagues corrected me on that a couple weeks ago, and I went, oh, my God, how long have I been doing that? <laughs> so axial skeleton. We can do it on peripheral joints. We can do it on the appendicular skeleton, though. HVLA is in our scope of practice since, uh, I think, 2007 or six. So we can do high-velocity joint moves on, say, wrists, ankles, knees, elbows, shoulders, hips. Um, So our scope overlaps a surprising amount. We have electrical modalities in our scope, assuming we've been trained on them. The difference with um, physios, they tend to have a lot of education in terms of illness that we don't really cover. That I tend to find they they are amazing at, uh, as a general rule, assuming the person actually tried in school. Um, That's a whole new kettle of fish there, though. But yeah, our scopes overlap massively. So why are so many therapists only using the soft tissue manipulation by hands-on in a passive setting while prone or supine approach? Again, I think it's the lack of confidence. It's to meet expectations of the public and even like insurance companies, for example. We've spoken about this before. I had a client who was instructed by his doctor to go to physio for a patellar tendonitis. And he did physio for two months and it wasn't getting any better. His aunt was a client of mine and she said, just go see my massage therapist. She might be able to help you. And you proved to be the missing piece. So this this guy, he was young, healthy, 20, 22 or 23 year old guy. He just wanted to get back to work. Like basically didn't care what it was. He just wanted to get back to work. He was losing his mind being at home on short-term disability. So I saw him, I want to say a total of four times. I may be wrong. I don't have a file in front of me, but about four times maybe. And after probably the third time, I got a text message from him that said, I just walked downstairs with no pain. 
and that hadn't happened in two months. And so anyway, when he came back to me for his final visit, he had forms from his insurance company because he was on the short-term disability. But very clearly at the top, it said physiotherapy report. And so I said, I just want you to confirm with your caseworker that I can fill this out because absolutely I've assessed you, I've treated you, I can fill this out, but will they accept it? Because it very clearly says physiotherapy. He didn't know how to speak to the adjuster. I got permission. I spoke to the adjuster myself and she said, well, if he's going uh, and seeking massage therapy, then he's obviously all better and he should be back to work. <laughs> he's supposed to be getting physiotherapy to help improve his strength and range of motion. And I remember getting off the phone that day and saying to Mark, well, what the fuck have I been doing with him then? Because he can now climb stairs, think his strength is getting better. I His range of motion is getting better. But because my title is massage therapy, clearly I don't work on strength and range of motion. I guess my actual question is why don't more of us do that? Not why are we doing what we do why don't more of us explore more and that's kind of one of the things that we could try to target it's a lot of really heavy amounts of overlap in our fields our scope of practice is again huge everyone's scope of practice is bigger than what they use i know mine is there's a lot of stuff in the scope i don't bother with like general massage anymore and i'm good at it but it beats the hell out of me as a video because i actually used to really like doing it i i there's something very calming and mindful and present as the clinician about doing a general massage therapy treatment. And I actually found when I stopped doing that, I missed doing it. But I also didn't miss the soreness in my wrists and shoulders as much. You found a way to make your scope of practice work for you so you could have longevity in the career. That makes sense. But again, if you're stuck in the mindset of general Swedish massage is the only part of your scope of practice you're going to use, then you might not have longevity in your career because it isn't realistic for everybody. I know I do a lot of it and I know that there are some days where I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> I need, I need work myself. You're like, Holy crap. I, my bank account loves me today, but my body does not. Right. So then my question is, do you find that you get blowback from therapists that are really heavy into that M you got on your table? Actually? Yeah, I do. Not something I really thought much of, but yes, I do. Um, Tell me about the blowback. I'm just trying to think about, specific examples like i tend to be a very vocal proponent that like just in my own personal social media of say vaccines mm -hmm. and uh i've had one of my old colleagues just lose her lose her shit on me on on open forum about how vaccines cause autism and the the doctor she works with is a chiropractor and he's anti-vax and how he said vaccines are bad for bad for uh, neural development and can, ca can cause autism and everything. She lost her mind about me going over that, but that's not really the same as what you're asking, I think. Um, general rule. Do you get any RMTs going, who the fuck does this guy think he is? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Probably wouldn't say it to his face. There might Maybe be some. And I know that as a general rule, psychologically speaking, people don't like to be told that what they've already done is wrong. People don't like to admit that maybe they are not always right, right? Like people don't want to hear that. So if there are therapists who believe this is a massage therapist, this is what we do, this is, and you know, they feel very strongly about it. They may not like all of these people who are going outside the box and who are doing things differently. You know, I've heard therapists say things like, like settle down, you're just a fucking massage therapist. Like stop trying to be a doctor. And it's, I've, really? I've heard it because they feel that massage therapy 
is, there's nothing wrong with massage therapy as it is. And these days, there are people who are really trying to change the public's perception of massage therapy. And so I think the people who are giving this blowback are feeling more like, well, like that other people like yourself are saying what they have been doing is wrong, which is not the case. You're, you at many times today said there is a lot of value in relaxation. There is a lot of value in general Swedish massage. There is stuff that we do that's wrong, but like with what we've talked about today, no, that's really right. That's really valuable. But making claims, that's where you get into the wrong. The And that's, that's the only going to change, though, if the schools change. The way we learn is still using terminology that may be out of date or may not be. Again, I'm not even going to claim that to have read all of the research that exists now. I know that, you know, evidence-based practice is a big thing that people are shouting right now. It's like the buzzword, yeah. And I, I, I haven't read everything, so I'm not going to claim to be an expert. So maybe some of the terminology is wrong. I still think the way we're taught in terms of treatment, there is a lot of value in. It may just be the way we think, the way we communicate, and as you said, the way that we're viewing what the profession is. We're not assessing, we're not giving any active therapy. We kind of stick to the passive modality, which there is value in, but not on its own. Probably the most valuable course I've ever taught was massage in context. And it was exactly what you're talking about. I was working at um, at Everest College in Mississauga. Yeah. And uh, the the uh, my boss is Shauna Wee Shauna uh, Weens. Thank you. Shauna Weens and Parisa Carello were um man, if I just butchered Parisa's name, she's gonna kill me. <laughs> <laughs> but they had me teach um not a volunteer class, like I wasn't volunteering, but a class the students could volunteer to come to on, on their own time. And what we did was we put everything in context. Uh, <clears throat> it was a, almost like a case study class. So I'd bring them cases I'm working on, and I'd walk them through, okay, how would you guys assess? What questions would you ask? Okay, what would you want to see demonstrated in that? How would you treat hands-on? How would you treat massage-wise? What kind of draping techniques do you think would be most appropriate for this person? Now, assuming those draping techniques, what kind of outside of standard massage could we do? Like, say... They're supine, and we have a, a leg drape. Can we tuck the leg drape in such a way that we can do Faber mobility? So can we do Faber stuff now? And can we now build on that? So we've done passive Faber mobility. Can we now actively build on that? And what Remaxes can we do? And now how can we educate them? How can we change that up? How can we explore that? And it was really cool because it was like a bunch of light bulbs going off for people. It was, oh, this makes sense now. I actually understand. It's not just isolated. This is assessments. This is Remex. This is massage. It was treatments all together. Well, that's the problem with the way it's presented sometimes is that, like, for example, when I took my assessments course in massage college, I hadn't learned a lot of the anatomy. physiology yet. I yeah. hadn't learned all of my anatomy. I mean, I had the background because I have a degree in kinesiology, so fine. But there were a lot of people in the class who hadn't learned a lot of these things. And we're learning an assessment and we're learning, sure, when, you know, what a positive indicates, but we don't even really know what that means. And there's really, aside from student clinic, there really isn't a chance to piece it all together and to actually get the critical thinking piece in. So I understand why people come out and they drop the other pieces other than this M because yeah. the M is what you get to practice all the time. The techniques are the techniques are the techniques and 
treatments are quite easy and a lot of them very similar if you're working on similar structures. So that's what people practice because that's what people know and they're afraid to try to incorporate the other stuff because when you don't get a black or white answer in an assessment, you're like, well, fuck, I'm dumb. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, so with regard to blowback, with regard to what you're asking, the blowback-ish that I perceive, and I, I don't know that I could use that word. I mean, I guess it's friction. I guess it I guess it counts. I guess you're right, but it's just not what I would have thought of. Would be coming from, from twofold sources. The sources who, oh, what was that guy's name? There was a gentleman named Boris or something years ago, and he adamantly would not would not believe the idea that there that that pain is is a nervous a nervous system output he said no my textbook says there are pain receptors there are pain receptors pain comes from your body what are pain receptors if not the nervous system though well when i say top i'm talking top down versus bottom up though okay and so he would say like okay i've pinched myself it has to hurt i stabbed myself it has to hurt there's no way that that can't hurt and we could say but here here are examples here are real life real world examples he'd say nope it's not possible. He couldn't conceive the idea that the textbooks were out of date, that they were based on uh, a Descartesian method of, or a model of pain, the, the mechanical model of pain rather than that neurodynamic model and potential. His, his answer was, oh, it's all gating. It's all pain gate model. It's not, it has nothing to do with output from the brain down. Yeah, so that was one where it wasn't blowback per se, but it was certainly friction, you know? It was, it was okay, well, here, how about this? No, I refuse to believe that. Okay, you're welcome to have an opinion, but right now you're arguing whether pants exist. They fucking exist. So it's not a matter of, does this happen or not? It's a matter of, this happens, what is your explanation? No, I refuse to. And I run in, I've run into that with people who are dogmatically anchored to an antiquated, uh, an anachronistic system of belief where they're just, no, I refuse to believe what the evidence says. I was taught this in school. That's the way it is. And some of those people, you know, based on your ego, right? Like think of your ego as your sense of yourself relative to how you think the world should see you. Not like the the classic we say ego. And based on that ego, they become hostile in response to something that fits outside of their sense of how they identify self. When I treat, my amazing hands are breaking down the fascia in your IT band, releasing the connective tissue bonds, and it's changing the range of motion at your knee and your hip, decreasing your back pain, and I've fixed you. And they are egotistically identifying with that that paradigm. And they, uh, the new evidence means now I have to reevaluate myself, which of course is uncomfortable and leads to hostility and leads to frustration. And they output that hostility. And then, yeah, there's some blowback like that. And there are some people who get offended like that. There are some people who get frustrated. Right. As I said, people don't want to be told that what they've been doing isn't 100% right. It's funny because even trying to be aware of that, when you say that, like when you said that previously, I, I tried to put myself in the position of you saying, no, Rob, you're wrong on this. And in my brain, I was like, I got my hackles up. Just imagining that scenario, I'm like, oh, well, guess I'm not as self-aware as I think. Good. Great. Fine. <laughs> and it's, it's, it, there is certainly going to be feedback from that, I guess. It's just, everybody just needs to chill out, in my opinion. <laughs> like, just be the therapist you want to be. If somebody's doing something differently than you, I, I think that's a great thing. I think that there's room for all of us. Uh, the as long only as not doing harm. Yeah, exactly. The only the issue down. I have is how we started this whole thing is that 
other people, not therapists themselves, other people put us all in the same category, whereas we are all very different. We all treat very differently. We all have the same scope of practice, but we don't use everything within that scope. So that is my biggest concern with, you know, the way that the public views us. But at the same time, it's our fault. We're all just different keys for different laws. You said as long as as long as they're not doing harm or bringing down the profession. The profession. Yeah. Tell us what what brings down the profession in your mind. I can give you an example of someone I was talking to yesterday, and she was seeing a chiropractor. And I know I tend to hate on chiropractors a lot, and that's not intentional. It's not. It's just they're a convenient example because their their field is so for those of you that couldn't polarized. see that he was doing some crazy hand gestures i'm not even sure how to explain oh yeah all right <laughs> their, so field is so camera, all over the place. <laughs> their field's really polarized you have some who are very evidence-based but you have others who are very subluxation and energy and vitalist based. but that i mean that's and massage so, therapists as well now like we but are it's very... so much more apparent so i can use the Cairo example right. whereas rmts were a little more under the radar and she was talking to a chiropractor yesterday. She went to see her, and the woman said, oh, well, your spine's wobbly and unstable and out of alignment. You'll need to see me three times a week for, I think, 12 weeks or something oh, to, get yeah. it, to get it back back to good. I nah, hate, bullshit. I hate He's that. out of alignment right now. He's so out of alignment right now. Why is he not dying? I hate that so much because there are a lot of really good chiropractors. Oh, yeah. In every field, there's good and bad, but I hate when I hear that because logically, think critically, how does it make sense that anybody, even a doctor, sees you one time and knows that you're going to need treatment for the next 700 years? How so, do they know that? They don't know that. They're Rasputin. So, okay, now I say chiropractor to a doctor, what do they do? What do they usually do? <laughs> yep. Why? Because the people who make claims like that have dragged the field down. I know some really good chiropractors. I know a guy in Burlington who has the best hands-on skill I've ever had of any practitioner in my mm -hmm. life. It's absolutely stupid. His assessment skills, not so great. His hands-on skills, mind-boggling. I know a guy in Hamilton who, as a general rule, has a pretty good clinical, uh, a methodical approach. And does he believe some stuff that maybe isn't fully supported by evidence? Yeah. Is he willing to drop it with each patient as need be? Yes. He's dragging the field up. He's right there. He's like, well, here are, here are my beliefs. I think maybe this can happen. I know the evidence doesn't support it, but I've seen stuff that makes me think otherwise. But that's okay. Let's try to see what works. Yeah, that's and an great. analyzing research is important when you're in these type of fields too because yeah. research is not the be all and Analyzing all. research is something I am not good at. I'm actually part of a research group right now where we every month pick a thing to do that with because I suck at it. So I got to practice. Yeah, I missed that. I was uh, I was teaching in Ottawa that morning when you guys had that going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're doing that again. I think Jen put out the next date. I got to figure it out. She's that, that woman's awesome. Um, but yeah, so we have people on the other side of it, though. I have someone come in. They say, well, my old massage therapist said I have scar, I, I have scar tissue in my neck. The fuck? Where did you get this idea? Okay, did you do a tissue biopsy or, or did they incise or... I get it. I get it. They did cadaveric research after you died, made a time machine, came back and told you. No, they're telling you this shit based on nothing, based on erroneous pseudo information and a false belief system. Okay. And now you think you're fragile. You think you're going to get hurt if you check your blind spot. That's dragging down the profession because anyone with a modicum of critical dissemination skill can come in and say, 
No, watch. If you have scar tissue, it's passive. So it hurts when you turn to here, right? Okay, let's see what happens if I passively turn you. Lay on the table. Oh, I can turn you further. It's not scar tissue then. And you didn't get stabbed in your neck. And I mean, is there a reason for you to have scar tissue? We're not full of ubiquitous scar tissue from all the myriad traumas we suffer day to day. I have a guy who had a helicopter crush half his body, but not like the top or bottom half, a side half. That would be a case where I'd say, yeah, you know what? That guy's probably got a lot of scar tissue tissue on that half that was crushed by the helicopter. Yeah. And okay, you know what? I could see that. I could see that being a thing. During that time that you're going through all those traumas and everything, and you've, like, that's when you've laid down those tissues if they are scar tissue. Because we do that in the first, I think, what, two months with anastomotic capillary activity. For the next four months, it starts to mature and the anastomoses die off. For the next 18 months, we have maturation and remodeling, correct? Two years overall for a functional scar, if I recall correctly. Please don't quote me on that. My info might be out of date. But that's what I was taught. So after all that, you've had that for how long? You've stayed active for how long? Why is it all sudden painful now? Why are we saying scar tissue? And again, there's no mechanism to indicate it. You didn't. You weren't in an IED explosion or in a multi-car pileup where you were at the epicenter. So why are we saying all this ubiquitous scar tissue or fucking trigger points make me want to jump off a building? This, this, this. Oh well, you have pain in your forearm. You have trigger points. It's, it's going to do this and refer out past your finger. And we need to treat like this with ischemic or ischemic, however you pronounce it. I don't know. Compression. Blah 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 blah. But. I send you to 10 different therapists and they, they assess for trigger points. I get 10 completely different symptom pictures with 10, 10 different presentations of trigger points and 10 different assessments and 10 different treatment plans and 10 different everythings. And none of them can even agree if you had an extensor digitorum longus trigger point, extensor digi, digitorum indices, sorry, trigger point. Why? That, that, that stuff, those are bold claims that have almost nothing backing them that can be easily disproved and that can actually do harm to our patients. Yeah, that would drag down the profession right there. And I know that that will probably get backlash. So people listening to this podcast are going to be like, wow, that guy Haddo is an asshole. And if I ever see him crossing the street, I'm going to hit the gas. But <laughs> maybe we should have told everyone your name was Haddo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who is always clean shaven and never has a beard. You will never know him in public. What do you think of Reiki? Why would you ask me that? You're just. You're just like, hey, this is flammable. (laughs) You don't have to answer it. We can cut this stuff out. Just curious. Oh, no. You you use it. I don't care. Um, Okay. So here are my thoughts. And bear in mind, you're talking to a guy who currently works out of a wellness center. Like, I'm the evidence-based elephant in the room here. There are people here I think actually offer Reiki and stuff like that. And again, it boils down to if you're doing harm. So if I tell you... You have trigger points, and it's going to weaken your grip strength, and you're going to have issues with that. I'm doing harm because I'm essentially disempowering you, right? However, if I say, I think you have trigger points, I'm going to treat like this. Okay, that's my thought. That's my opinion. I'm going to treat based on that. I have not made any assumptions towards you. If I say, okay, I think we're going to do Reiki. I would never say that, but say in another parallel universe I did, and I said, okay, we're going to do Reiki. Um, I believe you're... Is it, does Reiki work with chakras or life force or chi? There's some sort of I, I don't know much. Of, I don't You're know much staring at me. I'm like I don't know. Reiki. I don't do Reiki. <laughs> well, you've had Reiki done at least. I have had cranial sacral done. Reiki done too. By <laughs> did you make I've a noise cranial, with cranial sacral? I've had cranial sacral I've, done. I was taught cranial sacral by two different therapists oh, yeah. who uh, both also do Reiki, and right. I know one of them. I know she said she did some energy. Yeah, because every time was... we've had someone come on here and say they do they do Reiki, and I ask 
ask them, can you tell us what Reiki is? I can never get like a, a, very, a very solid answer on it. It's always kind because of this... it is working with energy. And again, obviously, for somebody who does evidence based practice, he doesn't even have to answer the question. We know that <laughs> he's not going to be for Reiki. But I think where you were going with it, as long as somebody's not doing harm and making crazy, bold claims, go ahead. If, if it's working for the patient, go ahead. Okay, so years ago, worked with a chiropractor, and she was one of my life lesson therapists I worked with. She was um, she was awful. What made her What made her awful? She was an idiot for one. Okay, we had a discussion one day. Uh, she was having really bad low back pain, and I was um, treating her for uh, for lower back pain and everything. And I was treating her hamstrings. I said, "Well, I mean, if we do an SFB a standing for bending test, you have like you get down to like 30 degrees before you start having to round your back. Your hammies are just." tight as hell and this is you know back before i practice the way i do now so my statement as an rmt was your hamstrings are tight your hip flexors are are not as strong as i'd want i'd say stretch your hamstrings do this you went and i went because you have a posterior pelvic tilt and that was back when i thought a pelvic tilt was the key to this stuff right and i was like you have a posterior pelvic tilt so that's probably your back pain so you need to stretch out your hamstrings she went no hip flexors what she is i have to stretch my hip flexors i stretch them all the time i already addressed this i'm fine with that one but hamstrings are the ones that pull posterior hip flexors pull anterior and she went no they don't hamstrings pull pull anterior hip flexors pull posterior and i went i'm reasonably certain that's not how that works and i can show you in mcgee or in prem kumar or uh the trail guide if we want cartoons and she's like no i'm a chiropractor trust me we know more Mm. my daughter has a book that says i'm a principal and so i know everything twice and with her i gave her i give everyone a three strike rule so that was strike one strike two was uh she was talking about the strike one was the the line about being a chiropractor i know more or the hip flexor hamstring uh, or is this a two strike thing that's out one time no that was one strike cumulatively as an incident okay um another one was uh she referred to the ligamentum nuke the nuchal ligament yep as your ligamentum flavum and as a chiropractor i would think that is something that they would not mistake yep because their thing is fine what was the other one faber it was a faber test yes we talked about favor positioning, and I said, well, you also demonstrated positive favor for this. We could also consider that. And she went, that's not a favor test. I went, what? She goes, Faber's test is a shoulder test for bicipital subluxation. It was designed by a chiropractor named Patrick Faber. I went, but favor stands for flexion, abduction, and external rotation. I can show you in the textbook right now. And she went, no, Rob, you need to stop with this. Trust me, I'm a doctor. We know more than you. And I went, I- okay. So that was my three strikes against her. So I say... She's an idiot. She's an idiot. And she would make claims that I count as doing harm. She would talk about um, how subluxations could contribute to cancer. She would talk about how regular chiropractic could help treat, basically, for that exact same reasoning. She would talk about how ultrasound, or sorry, uh, breast thermography was a good enough rule out for breast cancer. And, I mean, I remember she punctured someone's lung with an acupuncture needle doing something she really had no business doing and told the woman oh well acupuncture is a powerful modality it puts a lot of energy into you and so why the reason you're having trouble breathing right now is because of all the energy released no you popped your lung send her to the doctor and the woman had to go to the doctor later and sure enough had a an acute pneumothorax and stuff like that that's 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 the kind of thing where misinformation does harm when you start saying okay my 
My mysticism will heal you. You don't need your chemo. My mysticism will fix you. You don't need your medication. We can get you off of the insulin. All I need is my thermography. Treat your subluxations. We'll do that. All I need is my lymphatic drainage techniques, and we're going to help with that that growth in your armpit. You don't need to get checked. That's a problem. So when someone does Reiki, because let's face it, <clears throat> okay, pain is pain is a biopsychosocially mitigated nervous output. So I mean, we we can kind of say it's biologically mitigated. If I break your leg, there's a very high chance you will feel pain. Pretty high. If you are psychologically used to being in that kind of pain, it might not be that bad to you, even though you have a broken bone. If you're used to looking down and seeing broken bones. Like when I did my leg, it didn't hurt that much. Mm-hmm. My back hurt that day worse prior to breaking the leg than the leg did, and the bones came out. And it's not because I'm tough. I'm a baby, but it's because I'm used to that. That's a thing mm-hmm. that's normalized for me. Psychologically speaking, if you're experiencing about a depression of anxiety, your perception of pain goes up. If you're excited, if you're you're um, hyper, if you're thrilled, you're ecstatic, your perception of pain tends to drop. Socially speaking, the way you're brought up to to respond to pain actually output or changes how your nervous system outputs it. If pain is taught to be a normal part of your existence, you will not treat it critically the same way. It will not become catastrophizing as much, right? right? And so if Reiki fits in your your belief paradigm, if your your religion includes the perception of chakras as being related to your wellness, and you see someone who claims that they can help realign your chakras, that might be alone enough to help decrease your pain output. And there's a value in it. If they say, however, by realigning your chakras, I'm also fixing your your cavities, there's a problem. By realigning your chakras, I've taken care of that pancreatic cancer. You're good. That's a problem. Yeah, it's all in the language and how you're telling people. You know, if you've listened to some of the podcast episodes, I have definitely gotten a I don't know what the word is, but <laughs> you see my fist going. I've definitely had some issues with some of the the things that evidence-based practice practitioners have said, because it's not the way you're describing it now. What you're saying is what makes sense to me. I understand the biopsychosocial model of pain. As an example, I had two children without epidurals. I'm the biggest fucking baby in the world when it comes to pain. I don't but handle pain. it was pain. the normalest thing and you could do it. It was normal because in my mind, I felt like, okay, this is normal pain. This is what's happening. I understood what was happening in my body. It's going to fucking hurt, Yeah. but I will handle it because there's no way in hell you're sticking a needle in my spine. Case closed. Done. Not happening. It doesn't mean I'm tough. It doesn't mean I have a higher pain threshold. It was. I understand the whole the whole thing, and I understand um, evidence backing certain claims. You know, when it comes to connective tissue or it comes to trigger points, I get it. But it's all in language. My issue has always been when evidence-based practice practitioners start going off on all of these other modalities like Reiki, like reflexology and saying, well, there's, you know, this is all voodoo and there's no science behind it. And therefore it's useless. That to me is an issue because as you said, if it, if it fits with your belief system and you believe that realigning your chakras is going to help your body heal itself in some way, what harm is it doing? And it's not. And that's actually, weirdly enough, going back to your blowback question, mm-hmm. that's something I've gotten some blowback from is evidence-based practitioners like myself who are offended that I don't hate those. Weird, right? Mm-hmm. Not a source you'd expect. Right. But I've had a couple people who are staunchly, adamantly immobile in their evidence approach. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I kind of count myself as, I'm a stubborn bastard. And I was like, I kind of count myself as, no, I'm going to call a spade a spade. I'm, I'm stubborn. 
but I'm also kind of willing to step back and look at something. And that stubbornness means actually being able to be critically aware of that and be stubborn and being critical mm-hmm. and say, well, I guess I have to change my tune because I'm wrong. So I'm stubborn about trying to disseminate. Yeah. And um, some of these people are very staunchly black, white, this, this. Anything that isn't supported by evidence has no place in our scope of practice. Which, in in my mind, is completely going against the original claims to begin with. If psychology and socioeconomic status matter when it comes to pain, and that's just one aspect, like we're not even talking function. If they matter when it comes to pain, Mm -hmm. then why does subjective information, placebo effect, why do these things suddenly not count? when it comes to the patient experience. That is what drives me absolutely crazy when I read some of the claims made by evidence-based practitioners who are sort of, for lack of a better term, shitting on people who maybe go a little more in terms of the, I don't even know what to call it, but like things like energy work and Reiki. To some people, they probably seem like unicorns, and I get it, but I know that, for example, I had craniosacral done twice. Do I have any idea what those practitioners did to me? No, I don't do craniosacral. It doesn't, it doesn't even actually quite make sense to me. But whatever happened in those sessions, I got some benefit out of it. And I will say there are room for these type of practitioners. There is room, sorry. Like going to that example straight up, CST is a good head massage. It does not move the cranial bones. We are basically certain of that. The the evidence and, the, and that's about okay. That. But and if that's you walk okay. out of that and it's met your needs, right? If okay, what was your cost? Your cost was the money you output towards having your treatment, plus the opportunity cost of the time that you spent for that treatment. So the cost of your time, yes, but the actual cost of what else could be done with that time, which now creates a tangent, uh, a friable or not friable, um, a tangent, uh, a real variable. We can say this is this mm-hmm. much. Here's here's the 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 amount in that equation. That's different for every one person. Right. And if getting cranial sacral therapy helped offset your headaches, I mean, if I claim, okay, so here's the thing. I put your suboccipital, or sorry, I put your occiput back. It was out of place. The fuck? No, <laughs> that is not how my skull works. But I have a colleague who makes claims like that. Cause oh, I realize because you've done all the upledger stuff, right? Did Not I read that bit, somewhere? I've done. I've done. It was actually part of my education at uh, Canadian Therapeutic College, okay. part of the advanced technique stuff. Yeah. And I went on my own with it and studied a lot more on my own. I um actually haven't taken a lot of courses outside of school. I do a lot of just reading evidence and following courses and like I'm taking a. I'm, I actually am taking a course. I think next month. With Walt Fritz. I'm looking forward to that one. His uh, voice, yeah. yeah. That one looks pretty kick-ass. He's a good um, guy. I might be he? there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. I've I've been friends with him on social media for years, and we've chatted a couple times, cross-chatted in forums about stuff, and I, I like his approach. He seems pretty down-to-earth and pretty realistic about I it. I like him a lot. He is very realistic because he yeah. follows the evidence, and he understands again that what manual practitioners are doing isn't the problem. It's yeah. the communication. 
that is the problem. That's and a big I, part of I it. really love that about him because I think a lot of people are missing that point that mm-hmm. it's not what we're doing. I'm not going to so much change my style of treatment, yeah. but it's how I communicate to my clients. Yeah, that was happening. one of the things I asked him about, right? I'm like, if we were in total silence and you were doing your MFR stuff besides someone else who has a different MFR approach, would it look different? He's like, probably fucking not. He's just like, my intention is different and my language is different and my communication and, mm-hmm. and bringing patient, patient participation into the mix is different and therefore the outcome is going to be different. Yeah. And so with people making claims, big one for the big one for the upledger approach, the fulcrum for all of it is the sphenoid, right? The sphenoid interacts with all of the bones of the face and cranium and as such is a keystone to the face and cranium and is our goal to health and relates to movement at the sacrum. The sphenoid moves one way with the occiput, the basogangular junction, while the, the sacrum moves in the other way, and they should mirror each other, resulting in health. No, fuck that. People move how they move. And if I'm, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find your lateral orbital ridges, and I'm going to move one centimeter posteriorly with my index fingers and place them on the lateral wings of your sphenoid and use that to now manipulate the sphenoid bone relative to the cranium, which releases your sinuses and mo- and relaxes your lacrimal glands and, and changes your... Um, changes the tension through the crystal alley and all these ridiculous claims. You're going to do what? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, like those kind of claims have no place in our field, period. That I'm going to be staunchly against. If we have treatment approaches like Reiki, like CST, like reflexology, like uh, scar tissue unwinding, myofascial unwinding, some of the, cl- like the claims of myofascial work are so myriad. Some of them are like, oh, well, I'm doing this, I'm stacking it, and this is releasing your fascia. I'm actually detaching the scar tissue. Other ones are, I'm doing this, and it seems to be neuromodulating. Some of them are pretty realistic and pretty, pretty. okay, this is, you know, not a very big claim, and it's probably what might be happening, we think, to the best of our knowledge. Other ones are like, okay, then I should be able to cut myself open and see if there's a change. You know what I would compare this to? Like, this is like the debate of, like, science versus religion honestly it's like the evidence-based practice people are the science people who say there is no energy or higher power or there's nothing else in this universe it's all science and then there's like the extreme religious people who are like no god created everything and this and this and this whereas really every there's a whole bunch of unknown things and if you are somebody who is an evidence-based practice practitioner you should pride yourself in knowing that there's a ton of things that you know you don't know and if there are things that there isn't research on it doesn't mean they don't exist if there are things we can't explain it doesn't mean that there is no explanation right so to be able to be open-minded and say okay maybe something like reflexology or reiki works for some unknown reason as long as you're not claiming that your hands are magical and you're healing people, I don't see a problem with both of these things existing together. Science, religion, evidence-based practice, and energy work, it can all work together. I really like harmony. And that, <laughs> that like you're saying that's someone who is a very sciencey, apparently. Um, I tend to consider myself fairly evidence-based, yes, but I'm also agnostic. I'm very comfortable with my religious approaches being, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's pretty comfortable to me. That's pretty logical to me. Not an atheist necessarily, not religious necessarily. No, agnostic and atheist with. are not the same. Yeah. Although some would argue, some have argued to me that they are, and I would disagree. But I was raised, raised religiously. And it's funny, one of my close friends is um, not a priest. What do you call it? Uh, Minister? Pastor? Reverend? Pastor. 
pastor, <laughs> I think. Yes. And his background is neuroscience. His area of research was was uh, neuroscience, neurophysiology. And he has such a nice realistic view on his religion and on what religion means. And it's so refreshing because the two of us are very compatible like that. And so we'll have really good talks on that. And his, his area of study outside of religion was neuroscience, physiology, and health. And See, so and I find, I find nothing this. strange about that at all because I am, I am Catholic. Yeah. I went to a Catholic school. Mm. I learned religion all my life. Do I take the Bible literally? No. But do you know I, people who do. I do. Yeah. Do I go to church every Sunday? I don't. Sorry if you're listening, people at my kids' school. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I am also, I have a science brain. And it was interesting. I once got um, sort of attacked on social media for the fact that I, I decided to take reflexology. I thought it was cool. I had some treatments done. I thought it was cool. I'm like, I want to learn about this. And somebody actually said to me, if a science mind like yours, I don't understand how you could, um, I don't even remember the word she used, but basically how you could um, promote, promote, how you yeah. could promote. This was the podcast this, when we had Yes, the, we had a reflexologist on our podcast. Yeah. And I was so taken back by this comment because I thought, are you that arrogant and that close-minded that because there is no solid evidence that, I mean, our entire, this is a whole different podcast and a whole different conversation, but our entire existence, everything is energy. There is stuff we don't see. There is stuff we don't feel. And there's, I am not arrogant enough to think that there's stuff that we can't measure. And even the fact that I teach a course in the science behind positive thinking. You might think I'm a crazy person, but I've seen the results of being able to change your own mindset and being able to um, create new neural pathways in your own brain just by doing visualization exercises and affirmations and setting goals and actually taking control of your own life. It's It all exists and it's all energetically driven. And I think there's a lot of things in our universe and it, with energy that we can't necessarily, no. the research is never going to exist to its fullest because who has the time, money, resources to do all of this? Now, here's the thing. When people, okay, there's a bit to unpack there, but with, if people are talking about energy, I always want to know what kind of energy. Mm -hmm. If you're going to say generally energy, I've now tuned out. That's a thing for me because I worked with too many vitalist practitioners where energy is an energy it's no energy you know the difference right <laughs> you, yeah, you put on the voice oh yeah and it's funny because their 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 tone drops their voice smooths out their consonants soften and energy isn't energy it's energy it's the yoga voice yeah i also do yes. yoga and science of positive thinking i mean we have some pretty good graphs on why positive thinking does change the the actual physiology of mm -hmm. your brain the plasticity mm -hmm. of your brain the engrams in your brain and Straight up, that is, that is legit. But there's also room for tolerance. I don't, again, I don't really take much issue with people having beliefs that are different like that. I take, I take issue with people having claims right. on those beliefs. So one of the things that really kind of pisses me off that I see a lot of is from my own evidence-based community, people getting pissed off when someone asks about a Reiki course. Does anyone know a good Reiki course in Toronto? I'm curious. And they'll post it on a board and they'll say, 
just looking for good ev- or good Reiki base or Reiki courses don't need haters or something like that. And in the first five comments, you almost always seem to have the oh, why would you do that? There's no evidence to support it. What's wrong with you? And I'm like, okay, I can see where those evidence-based people are coming from, but they're making assumptions that this person's going to take everything literally. They're they're making assumptions that there's nothing wrong necessarily with energy-based approaches until they make claims contrary, or sorry, claims with cost. And so, yeah, energy, woo. But it's, it's, it can all have value as long as you're taking things with a grain of salt rather than this draconian, if it's not black and white, it doesn't exist. I agree. Look at us sitting here, me, the reflexology, energy, yoga doing, I don't even know, hippie that I call myself, and the evidence-based practice guy, and we don't hate each other. And Mark just sits here quietly in the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're weird, man. <laughs> <laughs> just, just taciturn, judging. <laughs> you know what's interesting about Mark? He's actually never judging. He is an observer. He jumps in when there's something that he wants to be enlightened on. Yeah, he's a podcast ninja. He is a podcast ninja. And no, he's the least, probably the least judgmental person that I know. He can have any person sitting in front of him and somehow find a common ground. And even if you guys disagree, it's like, okay, I'm not judging you for it. I don't agree with you, but cool. He'd be a chill guy to be at a party with. Like, oh, you no, know, he doesn't speak. That's what I mean. That's exactly <laughs> the point. Party gets too loud. Party gets too frustrating. I don't go to parties for that reason. You could sit next to Mark and be like, <laughs> and just give the, the sup nod. Yeah. Don't say anything. It's quiet space. That's, that's a good thing. Parties need that. But yeah. Comfortable silence comes out of me. Yep. Yeah. It allows for you guys to talk. Well, I, I never <laughs> shut up, but we probably should because we've been uh, we've been chatting for a long time. Before we do go, though, Rob, if anybody wants to get in contact with you, if anybody wants to pick your brain, how do we do that? Uh, I don't know. I'm actually new to all that stuff. I've just been putting out content. Um, do you have a website that we can direct people to? Yeah, I think it's haddomassage.com or haddomassagetherapy.com. There's a card up there behind you. It'll have it on it. <laughs> the tall green ones. Okay. This Don't one? knock yeah. over uh, all the Star Wars stuff. But Oh, Star Wars. There's your common ground. Okay, so for anyone looking to get in touch with Rob Haddo, just like Shadow without the, a, without the S, it's haddomassage.com. He's here in Oakville. And he does, we didn't get to talk about it, but he does put out content (laughs) via YouTube with uh, remedial exercise, movement therapy stuff that he does. And this is for his patients, but also for the general public. If you want to get some ideas on some new ways to look at movement and therapy. And uh, that's, yeah, that's how we found him. It's pretty cool. I think it's a really good uh, business idea because although a lot of these rehab exercises you're showing us, we already know but nobody's put it out in the public space for everybody to see. It's great. Anything else you want to talk about, Mark? Quiet in the uh, corner. I'm good. I think. Uh, yeah, I, I've said I've said a lot on this guy. <laughs> Wait, do you normally say less? <laughs> oh man, yeah. Holy crap, man! You're a ghost. <laughs> can be, can be. Today That's amazing. Like a, today felt like yet, a ghost moment. Yet, fun fact before we wrap up, Mark is actually the Tasmanian devil. Although he doesn't speak much, yeah. when he comes into a space, you will know it because everything else he does is loud. He walks loud. He sneezes loud. He <laughs> coughs loud. He puts his keys down loud. He answers his phone loud. He, loud. That's oh, I mean, look at the loud look I'm getting. I'm in so much <laughs> trouble right now. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. All right. I think that's a wrap, kids. Sweet. Right on. You guys have been listening to uh, 
two massage therapists and a microphone, I wasn't one of them. Peace. <laughs> <laughs>